This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York at Queens College. Today, lying at work. Our guest is Sarah Jenkins from the University of Cardiff. Our discussion was recorded on March 21st, 2019. Okay, I'm here with Sarah Jenkins from the University of Cardiff. Sarah is a reader at Cardiff University. She's a sociologist of organizations in the management, employment, and organization section there. Uh, first of all, Sarah, what's a, what's a reader? Uh, can you explain to our American audience uh, what that is? Kind of like a lot of British terminology is quite anachronistic. And I think in the old days, it literally did mean that you were you spent your time reading, uh, oh, which, really? would, which would be great. Yeah, I think a lot of us would love that job. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, what they've actually done now in a kind of classic organization sort of politics is, is insert it before you get to professor. So uh-huh. it's another rung on the progression track that uh-huh. we have in, in the UK. So before you can become a professor, you have to go through the readership. And unfortunately, we have to do all the research and the teaching as well. And it's not just reading anymore, but that would be good. <laughs> you just don't get the thing. So it's just like a higher vertical hierarchy, yeah. a couple extra steps. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just a few more rungs to go to again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> In in uh, in 2017, Sarah published uh, a great paper with her co-author uh, Rick Delbridge, "Trusted to Deceive: A Case Study of Strategic Deception and the Normalization of Lying at Work," and it was in uh, organization studies. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining us. Thank I, you. I just and uh, <laughs> b- before let, let's let's get into uh, let's get into the paper first, and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to come back to life at business school just for a second. If we can. <laughs> uh, but before we start, let's talk about the study. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we get into those deals, details, let's talk about lying in general. Uh, sometimes when we think of lying, we think of like betrayal or mm-hmm. some type of underhanded moral transgression. Mm-hmm. But lying is very common, right? It's a commonplace facet of social life. Absolutely. Yeah. Alan Goffman, you know, it's part of the the wheels of sort of social interaction that we all engage in, no matter how much we don't like to admit it, but we do. And and it is definitely part of people's jobs, right? Like you point out police officers or flight attendants, what type of work has been done on lying at work in the past? Yeah, there's been some really great sociological studies. Um, Shulman, who um, I think think Shulman is based um, in the um, oh gosh New York State University the name is Connell and Shulman did a really great study about uh, private detectives and how lying is a kind of feature of the work within a private detectives job mm. and then there's been kind of studies that have looked at lying in a more episodic manner so a really good study by again some american academics called alpert and noble who looked at the different features of lying in police work um some of which is just what they call administrative lying so for example you're just about to finish duty you get a call two minutes before you're about to sign off asking you to go to a an a, a, a situation and you kind of ignore the the request so that you can get home on time mm. um so kind of the sort of things that we might do in order to save ourselves some time and protect us uh, in organizations 
to slightly more deceptive practices like you know kind of pretending that you've got more information on the uh, on the potential um perpetrator than you actually have to get a confession um mm. And then also some really interesting work that was done um, on flight attendants by Scott. And again, some of that is kind of has a moral dimension. So, for example, there's a problem with the flight. Uh, you don't want to make the passengers really nervous. So you say, oh, we're just having um, we're just going to put some fuel in. You know, it's not there's you know, there's nothing to be alarmed about. So not actually saying we have a problem with the engine. Um and things such as, you know, um, again, a sort of a moral side of it where they're protecting people. So maybe uh, there's a lot of kids on the flight that are wanting fizzy, soft, sugary drinks. Um, mm -hmm. The flight attendant thinks, actually, that's not really good for their health. And I'm only going to give them one. Uh, and then mm -hmm. I'm going to pretend that we've run out. So different motivations that underscore uh, the reasons why we might lie in organizations to obviously then more kind of corrupt material advantage associated with with deception so there has been some really really nice studies but a lot of them do tend to be episodic in nature mm -hmm. so you know as part of our jobs we all engage as we mentioned earlier in some features of deception um so I guess what we were interested in was this this concept of strategic deception. Right. But like group and, and I, I read I read your paper as you're like looking at how like teams of liars yeah, can yeah, be developed, yeah. like yeah. group how group lying or like, a, you know, an association of lying can develop. Abs absolutely. And this is this is partly because of this notion that um, Pat Wadadern et al. Um, 2009 came up with this conception of, of strategic deception, which mm. is when organizations, their kind of main strategic business uh, is underscored with deception. So in their case, they looked at Indian call centers that mm. never, um, never say that they're actually based in India. Right. Um, and so they're set up never to kind of to deceive if you like mm -hmm. and this our organization was very similar in that sense so it was set up never to divulge that the people working in it um were actually located where they were so kind of similar to the pat wadadern study mm. uh, but they were based in in the uk um so in that context the the the, the group is really important because everybody's got to engage in lying as part of their job. So tell us, who did you observe? Tell us about your subjects. Yeah, well, it was, it kind of is really interesting because it came about because the chief executive who was incredibly open and really kind of a pleasant person, they've, they've won lots of awards. It's essentially a call center that mm. um, engages in virtual reception services mm. for companies that outsource essentially their reception and, and PA work. And she came to give a talk at Cardiff and she was really kind of positive about the organization and what a fantastic place it was to work and how happy the workers were. So, of course, being kind of critical sociologists, we sort of looked at each other and said, yeah, right, I bet we've got, please let us come and speak to your employees because, you know, the last thing we thought of was a call center environment where people are really happy. Don't yeah, think totally. so, you know. <laughs> so, um, so we went there, and um, much to our horror, I must admit, I must admit, initially 
they were mm. really, really happy. <laughs> and we were stumped, you know, because you don't really want that much of a good story as a sociologist because you think, you know, the classic thing of you're not really being very critical. Um, yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so it was like, oh no, what are we going to do now? And and it, and I was like, well, look, hey, a sociologist, what we're gonna, what we're trying to do is explain, you know, it's not mm. false consciousness. There's a reason why these workers are really happy, and it's our job to try to kind of, you know, explain why they're happy. Um, totally. Lying was part of that story, um, but we didn't know that at the time. So that obviously one of the issues about why lying is incredibly pervasive in organizations but really doesn't get a lot of research space is because most of us don't knock on an organization's door and say please tell us about all the lies your your employees tell <laughs> so it's, it's really hard to get access to do this kind of research so um right. so this this was great so we, so we literally went went up and and they were very very open like i said and said yeah come in and so speak to us so so there were three of us at the time in part of the study um there were about 100 employees and we interviewed about 60 to 70 of them so it was a you know not far off three quarters of the workforce um we also observed them doing their jobs so i sat beside them and shadowed them and we also observed the recruitment and selection process but it was mainly um, semi-structured interview data, uh, which lasted, normally lasted about, a, about an hour. Um, so they were quite in-depth, um, detailed. And what we were really kind of shocked at is how open and upfront they were about how they lie for a living, mm. which, as I said, we hadn't anticipated. And it was kind of on the, it was a, you know, we had a tra long train journey home and we were sort of like, oh my gosh, they are, they lie and they, they're really open <laughs> about this. And uh, this is not something we know much about from the literature. So we had to kind of so quickly adapt the study. <laughs> All right. So wait, there's, uh, let first let's talk about how lying was rationalized. Like what was the reasoning? Uh, yeah. How did these people live with being, you know, professional deceivers? Mm -hmm. It's a really good point because most of them admitted that even though now they were very, uh, you know, over time they became more familiarized with lying. Um, at the time, nearly all of them said they found it initially very, very difficult because it it goes against our social norms. Um, right. So they said, you know, oh gosh, it was really, really hard. But what the what the study kind of um, identified was how lying for a living became normalized within the organization through processes of institutionalization, rationalization, and then socialization. So the company was very, it was very, very clever to start with because I think one of the things it, it did was it, it linked the, the need to lie uh, as part of the job with pro providing really high quality customer service. Mm -hmm. So, what they they became the market leaders in was the kind of high-end reception services mm -hmm. so each receptionist was given sort of about 30 clients that they they became the the, the pa for mm -hmm. and um and the the emphasis was very much you know you will give them a very personalized high quality service mm -hmm. and you decide with them in conjunction to their needs, what kind of service they want. Right. So there was a huge amount of kind of discretion on the employee to kind of negotiate the service delivery, which is very unusual for this kind of work. 
Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. You think of it as a mick job, usually, these uh, yes. cult centers. Huh. Yes. Very interesting. Yeah, and so this, this is definitely not a kind of tailorized, high-quantity call center environment. It's, it's a much, it's, you know, it's a lot of the features of why it works in this organization is because it's, it's small, it's familial, it's owned by a brother and sister. Um, the fact that they didn't actually go to business school, I think, was a major factor in the kind of employment <laughs> practices. <laughs> they were they were really kind of cool, quite alternative people who sort of had worked in art and um, and essentially said, look, they got together and said, there's a real need for this reception service because uh, actually one of them was a, a surfer and had a surf business and um, he'd gone away, left his business with a with a kind of a, a, a traditional receptions kind of call center who who'd mm. actually lost him a lot of business so he sort of got around and said to his sister hey there's a there's a real kind of market need here for providing really good quality reception work and they said right let's think of if we're setting up a business uh, ourselves let's think of all the best things about what we found in previous organizations where we've worked and mm. let's see if we can we can do that here so I, I, it's it's interesting because you think of a call center as a low human capital job, but they have sort of an HR strategy that seems to have a lot of empowerment. Absolutely. Now, did they hire from the most trained sort of tranche of this market? Like, were they getting sort of college graduates or were they hiring from the same pool, basically? And just succeeding with this empowerment strategy. Yeah, really good point. The the recruitment and selection was really key to this. And of course, with it being a kind of newish organization establishing itself um, only a few years before, it could actually do that. So it could it could say, This is what we're looking for. Mm. And absolutely that. They 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 were still sort of semi-skilled, they weren't kind of college educated um, employees, they were all women, they were you know, working class women mm-hmm. who demonstrated a high propensity for service quality that's what they looked for so people that had maybe had other kinds of jobs but were really interested in providing a good customer service and interestingly one of the reasons again why they were so happy and why they were kind of content in the organization was some of them had worked for a really traditional tailorized call center that Mm -hmm. operated very close by uh where it had the usual electronic monitoring you know they couldn't go to the loo when they needed to they Mm -hmm. they were pretty highly monitored um and so working in this environment was really different um and they did have a lot of discretion but because of the degree of discretion they needed to recruit people that they felt they could trust um and so they did use a a lot of it was through familial relations and friendship ties which kind of has its own control mechanism within it doesn't it you know so if if i'm if i'm recommending my friend for the job then my friend's gonna you know obviously not not sort of uh, not go against what the organization wants because it'll also reflect badly on me. Right. Huh. So it was quite homogenous, you know, white working class uh, women who had previously worked in a range of mainly service roles, um, but had this propensity as they saw it for high quality service that they would go the extra mile in service delivery. It's really interesting though, because it sort of runs against uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd say like an orthodoxy or, or like maybe a proclivity in, in HR where we 
Mm. Filter on education and uh, a lot of people who who don't get high level, you know, degrees or things like that, they don't get tracked towards highly empowered uh you know jobs it's yeah. it's a very very interesting uh sort of hr model it is so wait there was a socialization process you you said that normalizes uh line what was mm. it like well how did it work well i think the key thing with this is that it, the socialization wasn't just formalized it wasn't just top down from the organization so they were very they were very good in kind of setting up the parameters of the values and the irony with this organization was the kind of core values were trust and care hence the paper you know trusted to deceive because it's kind of you know an oxymoron in many ways that mm -hmm. they they kind of created this really strong culture value environment where people were really kind of as I said for cared for and trusted the key thing I think about those values is, you know, lots of organizations say they have a strong value system, but it actually doesn't go much further than rhetoric. Whereas in this organization, they were really, really keen to ensure that those, that trust and care were actually uh, promoted in everything they did, including the way the labor process was organized, hence the discretion on autonomy that they enjoyed was so much higher. So, but apart from those kind of broader social values that were, were kind of in, sort of discussed and talked a lot about and enforced through these practices, a lot of the socialization was left to the group and the team. Um, and so within the teams where they were, there were only four or five of them on a team, they would actually help one another deal with the kind of everyday lies and support one another and also have a great deal of fun and creativity and joy from from making up the kind of lies that they engaged in so the sort of group processes of socialization uh, we would argue were, were much more important than the formal processes very interesting uh, you know I, I i thought about that notion that high quality professional customer service does involve mm. some form of systematic deception mm. like do you think that it's like that form of deception is the deception that you saw is just an exaggerated version of you know part of everybody's job like do you think we in the university <laughs> do the, the industry do the same thing or would you prefer not to go on the record with that one or <laughs> well i think I think being, you know, being a, a reflexive researcher, you you can't ignore the fact that, you know, when you do re you research deception and lies and you reflect on it in your own experiences. And uh, yeah. yeah, more than a few times I've kind of mentioned to my colleagues, oh, my gosh, you know, I research deception and it, it's what we do every day. Yeah. <laughs> There's elements of it. And it's about those degrees, isn't it? And I think, I think one of the reasons why it became normalized here was that it, initially it was seen to be kind of white lies you know mm. it was small it wasn't that significant and it was things like hey if i actually worked in an office for um for my boss and i was his receptionist you know we would routinely say things like uh, oh i'm afraid he's he's away from the office when he didn't want to take calls right so it's kind of normalized as part of what a job of a good receptionist would be in protecting mm -hmm. the boss yeah. so some of it was definitely you know an accepted part of that role and i think you know we we look at a number of jobs and we can see yeah this is part of sort of what lots of work involves 
But I think um, the other features of this is that the whole business, as I said, this strategic deception was predicated on the fact that the, because they offered such a kind of high quality service, they were never to tell the clients, um, the clients, customers, that they were actually a virtual service. So they were always to pretend that they were physically located in the office where the where the customer had phoned had mm-hmm. called yeah um and so that was part of of what the the whole organization's um you know usp was about it was kind of you never ever ever disclose that you are a call center yeah it, it reminded me some some passages uh, felt organization or uh, organized crime like in uh, yes. sort of the meta messages that were being communicated. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, you know, I bet you if you had spent, you know, a couple months with a criminal organization, you'd find <laughs> sometimes some similarities. Yes. No, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you know, and it did. And I think this is the key because because they were allowed to sort of negotiate the service delivery with the client directly. It was sort of it was done in a quite an informal way, and and if I was going to work for you, Joe, and and you and I had a really good rapport, then I would kind of and you said to me, "Oh, Sarah, you know, could could you kind of make out like I'm my organisation is much much bigger than it really is, mm. um, so that when my when my clients and uh, their customers want when they when they phone me that you actually." portray an image of me as being a really large organization so i'm not actually just working out of my bedroom that i've got this big organizational kind of uh, behind me and if i liked you and we got on and that was fine i would do that right (laughs) but i wouldn't necessarily do for everybody and you know and not everybody would ask that and not everybody would want that so it did stray into that sort of oh this is this is getting to a stage of this is deceptive and this is potentially fraudulent mm. um, because lots of organizations that are slightly dubious may be attracted to these kind of virtual reception services for that very for that very point you know they might be a complete cover for for a fraud organization uh, but by having you know a kind of a, a sort of 24-hour reception service it makes it seem as if this is a legitimate business right let me let's switch gears for a second let's talk about uh field work uh and uh you know doing ethnographic research in organizations uh well wait were you did you do ethnography or was it strictly interviews i'm sorry it was mainly interviews but with with i mean what i would call it was a kind of detailed qualitative case study right so the the observation was mainly um shadowing or focused observation around like the recruitment uh, but mainly through the interviews. And, and were, were there any sort of big methodological lessons that you took home from this experience that you might want to pass on to any of our other, you know, uh, listeners who are uh, doing that type of work, organizational quality? Yeah, I guess it's the, it's the point about, you know, one of the joys and the pains of uh, qualitative research is that, you know, we have to be incredibly flexible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and sometimes you kind of end up going down an alley that you didn't think you were going to end up going down. And that requires us to be adaptive. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the time, especially 
I mean, I, I teach research methods as well. And, you know, we, we often present an image of research methods, which is quite sanitized and kind of uh, quite processual. And, mm-hmm. you know, everything is dis- especially I think we see in the UK, you know, with with a lot of the PhD programs, you know, you have to have your research questions and you have to know exactly what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. But actually, what this researcher has said, you know, with deception, he had no idea this was going to be a feature of the organisation mm. uh, until we were there, and then we had to kind of slightly change track. Um, and also, I, I guess you know, it's kind of going with your hunch and kind of going with your gut feeling of yeah, there's something in this. And mm. initially, I think um, you know that's why we ended up interviewing so many people was because we were skeptical about how happy they were (laughs) and we did think have these been selected for us you know are they are they really this kind of motivated so we kind of did more and more and more just to kind of justify that um but it was it was very um it it was very interesting and and the organization i have to say were were fantastic in the sense that they were you know they really were true to form in that they hey we, we trust people and you can speak to as many people as you want and you can speak to them for how long you want to without any problems whatsoever because we trust them right you know it's also like it's a testament to avoiding the pitfall of like imputing false consciousness on your subjects like you could have just as easily walked in there expected them all to be secretly miserable and they tell you they're happy and you say oh well they don't know that they're unhappy Mm -hmm. and it's you know one is great because that's how you actually find things uh so i I love that about what you did great also it's like it, research is boring when you're trying to prove a point that you yes. said at the beginning, right? Yes. <laughs> well, that's what I say to, to students. It's kind of get really nervous when you say, well, you know, you might not actually end up doing the PhD or your study on this area, that it actually might be something quite different. And of course, that's terrifying, isn't it? Because you're going to, yeah. oh, my God, I've done all this kind of literature evaluation. What am I going to do with it? But I said, well, what's the point of doing research if we know what it is we're going to find before we've done it? So... It was really revelatory, yeah. You know, it's hard, though, because, um, you know, I also teach research methods. and uh, <laughs> I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, and it, it, there's a real push, I think, to teach a sort of scientism. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, geez, how do you portray what we do then as social scientists? Mm-hmm. If it, it, like, it's not hypothesis testing, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, like, how do you portray the process or the, you know, the product that we're putting out, if not scientific tests? Mm-hmm. Well, what I would say is it's not scientific in that traditional kind of positivistic science tradi- uh, tradition of, of, um, of what is science. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean to say that it's not relevant, robust, authentic and plausible. So, so what we're we're trying to do always is to ensure that we provide a kind of a really strong, robust story that represents our our case and our study in an in an authentic way, um, in, in as true a way as we can kind of we do that. And there, there are it's not quite the same approaches and methods that we have in the scientific method, but that doesn't mean to say that it shouldn't be systematic and rigorous. Um, you know in that way so uh what are you working on next yeah so i've um moved into uh looking at worker cooperatives mm. which uh which is quite uh, it's interesting again because in the uk we haven't had a very embedded kind of worker cooperative movement um 
But I think, you know, what's interesting is since the financial crisis, what we see with cooperative studies is that it kind of goes in waves, it's in cycles. Mm -hmm. So after a crisis, obviously, we, we see a kind of a resurgence of interest in alternative forms. Uh, so I've done one study on a worker cooperative and I'm now looking at, um, I've just done some, some research over the summer on a social care cooperative. Mm. Uh, so we have a, a major problem with social care employment in the UK because it's very, I don't know if the similar, similar situation in the US, it's very low paid. There's major problems of recruitment and, and um, turnover and the quality of the care given um, can be very sort of sporadic. So uh, I'm looking at an organization which has kind of changed its whole uh, its whole approach from being a, a charity to, um, to a, a, a care cooperative to see if that has a, a, an impact on the employee experience of work. So that's uh, that's really interesting and uh, it's quite exciting in the in the context of Wales where, where we're based because our government are, is very, very supportive of cooperatives and has passed a kind of legal requirement that organisations, when they outsource care, should look in the first instance to outsource to a cooperative. So it's kind of trying to create a framework where cooperatives are very much part of the kind of economic regeneration process in what is a very poor part of a, of a, of a Western economy. So it's interesting. Uh, it's very interesting. <laughs> You've been listening to the Annex a Sociology Podcast. A special thank you to Sarah Jenkins from the University of Cardiff. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at SochAnnex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisette Moreno. I'm Joseph Cohen. Thanks for listening.